We're in 1 Samuel this morning, 1 Samuel 30. We're almost done with the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to save chapter 31. I was, I was going to try to do it today, but um, it's just too much. And so the death of Saul, chapter 31, we're going to pick that up after Advent. Next Sunday, we'll begin a four-week Advent series, and then we'll continue in uh, 2 Samuel after that. So this morning, 1 Samuel 30, I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. This is God's Word. Verse 1 says this, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. Now if you remember, the Amalekites are an important group of people. These were the people whom God had told Saul to completely destroy. And if Saul had done what he was told to do, this wouldn't be happening. Apparently, um, they have come back with a vengeance and now they're making raids against Israel. Okay, They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in the city, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. Now, the fact that they killed no one doesn't mean that they were being nice. It means they intended to sell the women and children as slaves. Okay? Verse 3. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept, until they had no more strength to weep. Have you ever done that? Have you ever wept until you had no more strength to weep? That's intense suffering, right? I mean, that's, that's like sad as sad can be. I mean, these men, they think they've lost their entire families because they don't know exactly what's happened yet. And, and I don't want to brush over this quickly. As I try to tell the story, I want to pause here for just a second because this is important. There's a lot of suffering in the Bible. A lot. And it's often described for us in very depressing detail. The Bible never puts human suffering sort of in the fine print or in the footnotes, you know, to try to attract our attention. It just gives us the detail. It puts suffering in bold, obvious letters. And as we've now studied Judges and Samuel, I hope you see this, right? God's people suffer. God's people suffer. And often it happens at the hands of, of wicked men. And the writer tells us what that grief looks like. These men who we know are capable warriors, right? They're seasoned veterans, hardened soldiers. They weep until they have no more strength to weep. So I didn't want to just like pass by that. I mean, that's, 
powerful. Don't let the pain of the story get lost here. Okay, It's important to see their grief because this is the human experience in a sinful world. This is an important part of the story. The one promise that Jesus made to his disciples that no one likes to hear is that we will suffer in this world. It wasn't a prediction, it was a, it was a promise. Okay, so there's my little side thing. Verse 5. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. They're talking about stoning David. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Part of grief is almost always the experience of anger. And we see that here, right? We want someone to blame for what we're experiencing, for the loss. And the men here are blaming David because in their minds, you know, we left our women and children defenseless, David. This is your fault. And there's almost a mutiny over it. And that's not difficult to understand, right? They escaped the battle, but they come home to ruin, to loss. But David... The writer says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And so Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him. God answered him. Pursue. For you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. This is, um, this is a really critical turning point in the story of David. If you've been keeping up with us, you know that this man has not been perfect. He's been pretty good, but he's not been perfect, right? His fear is the reason that they're in Ziklag in the first place. David has not mentioned God since chapter 26. David has not consulted God since chapter 23. Okay? Which in Bible terms, this is like a long time. This isn't like a few days, right? This is, this is a long time. So, but now, David seems to come to his senses. He returns to the word of the Lord. He says that he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Notice the possessive pronoun, his God. In other words, my house is gone. My possessions are gone. My family is gone. My wife, my children, but my God is not gone. Now in context, it's important to notice that David has some very good reasons in this moment to fear for his own life. 
And this, this fear, right, has been a constant theme throughout the book of Samuel. You've got Saul and, and the Israelites constantly afraid of what men might do to them. Afraid that something bad might happen to them. Fear of death is a common theme in Samuel. And the text tells us that David was greatly distressed, right? Of course he was. His home is destroyed, his family is missing, and his men want to stone him to death. But in the midst of that fear, David's actions demonstrate what looks like to me faith and repentance, okay? So another way to say that is that David's fear of the Lord overruled his fear of men. In the entire Old Testament, the fear thing is a, is a really common thing. And fearing God specifically is a major theme, not just in Samuel, but in the Old Testament. David's son Solomon is later going to write uh, probably the book of Ecclesiastes. And he's going to say that the whole duty of man, everything we're supposed to do in this life is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's the summary of what God expects of us. Fear me and keep my commandments. Now, when you hear that, that phrase, fear God, what do you think of? What do you think of when you hear the words fear God, right? I think, because it is for me, it probably is for you, kind of a difficult concept to think of what exactly is it that God's asking me to do, right? To fear Him. And the reason it's difficult is because we usually think of fear as only a bad thing. We don't like the feeling of fear, right? Raise your hand if you like feeling afraid, if that's just fun for you. Okay. Nobody likes the feeling, right? Fear itself is sort of a, we think of it as a bad thing. And sometimes fear can be unhealthy because it means that our brains have malfunctioned a little bit, right? And I'm more afraid of spiders than I should be, right? Some of you are more afraid of heights than you should be or more afraid of snakes than you should be or more afraid of, I don't know, what's something silly, clowns than you should be, right? Um. And sometimes that fear can really get out of control and it can cause something called anxiety or panic and you can have anxiety attacks and that's all the fear part of your brain, right? But most of the time, if you think about it, fear is actually a good thing. Why is fear a good thing? Because it keeps us from doing dangerous or life-threatening things, right? When you're a child, fear keeps you from playing in the street. Fear keeps us from jumping off the roof of our house, right? There are certain things that fear is actually, God gave it to us for a reason. It protects us, right? So now what happens when two fears compete with one another? This is how I want to explain fearing God, okay? What happens when two things compete with one another? So when I was in college... I had the opportunity to do a high ropes course for the first time, right? Where you strap into a harness and they have ropes and you have to 
climb things and zip line down things and all this. I think some of the students are actually have been doing that this weekend on the retreat. And in one of the challenges when I was in college, I had to climb up on top of a telephone pole and stand up at the top of the pole, trusting that the rope and the people below who were holding on to the rope were going to keep me safe if I fell. Okay? So I'm standing. Think of a telephone pole. That's how high I was. I'm standing on top of it. Now, I was terrified. But I did it. Why? Because I didn't want my friends on the ground to think I was a coward. Now, that was two fears competing with one another. One fear is the height. The other fear is what my friends think of me. And in that moment, my fear of what they thought of me outweighed my fear of the pole. Does that make sense? Two fears competing. One of them is going to win. And I think, brothers and sisters, that's how we're supposed to think about the fear of the Lord. Fearing God is to give Him ultimate weight in every circumstance such that He weighs more than anything else we might fear. We're giving Him ultimate weight. No other fears are competing with our fear of Him. Does that make sense? That's how I think of it when I come to fearing God in the Bible. Jesus explains it perfectly in Matthew 10, 28, where He says this, Do not fear those who kill the body. And you're like, wait a second. Jesus, you're telling me not to fear murderers. Like the thing that we probably fear more than anything else, right? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay, that makes sense. But who's He telling you to fear? God. Right? Who is that? Who's He talking about? He's talking about God. And David shows us what it looks like in that moment to be more afraid of God than men who want to stone Him to death. So, how do we strengthen ourselves in the face of our fears or in our times of need? Well, if we're going to do what David did, then we're going to go to our priest. And we have a better high priest than David had. And I'm just teasing you right now, okay? We're going to save that thought for a minute. We're going to come back to it. But of course, you know I'm talking about Jesus, but let's come back to that in just a minute, okay? Verse 9. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 men stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. Okay, when I read that, I was like, too exhausted to cross a brook. Maybe I'm not thinking about this right, but a brook in my mind is like 
two steps across a puddle, right? So I don't know why they were too exhausted to do this. We'll come back to that as well. Um, after this verse, they find an Egyptian man alone in the wilderness. And this man was, we're told, a slave of the Amalekites and was left behind to die because he was sick. But God used the Egyptian man to show David where the Amalekites were camped. And then they go to the camp. They launch a surprise attack on the Amalekites during a festival, easily defeat the army. And then verse 18 says this. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything they had taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Now pause here for a minute. Notice the emphasis on David. The writer wants us to start thinking of David like a king. And if you remember Samuel's warning about kings, what did he say? He said, they will take, 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 right? They will lead you, but they will take everything from you. And the people seem to recognize this as David's victory and David's spoil. And so this is a very important moment. It's a moment of truth for David. What kind of king will he be? Verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And then David came near to the people. When David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Sounds kind of fair to me, right? But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. Would that make you mad? And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. This is a really, really interesting story to me. Okay, And I think this is very critical to the story of David because it shows that David was not just a good warrior. David was a wise and just king. Now, you may be thinking, that doesn't sound like justice. That doesn't sound fair at all. But here's the key. More important than being a good warrior and even a good king is the fact that David proved himself to be a law keeper. 
because there are rules in the Old Testament. God had given rules about how spoil should be divided. And David knew that. David knew God's law, and he kept God's law in this circumstance. And you and I wouldn't even know it unless we knew the Bible enough to know that hidden in all those old rules in, in, in the book of the law were directions about how spoil should be divided. David knew it, and David did it right, even though a majority of the soldiers felt entitled to a larger share. And so would we, right? Had we been there. He spread the wealth. He didn't keep it for himself, and he made sure that everyone got an equal share, even though some of the men did more of the work. Which was probably very popular with the men who stayed with the baggage and not so popular with the men who actually fought the battle, right? It should also remind us of a parable that Jesus taught in Matthew 20, the parable of the generous landowner. In that parable, Jesus tells a story about a man who hires workers during the day. All throughout the day, he goes back to hire more workers to work in the field, in the vineyard rather, and each, of, each time he goes back, he promises the new workers a full day's wage. No matter how long they're going to work. And at the end of the day, the men who worked all day were frustrated that they were paid the same as the men who worked only one hour. And you and I would probably have been frustrated too, right? But the man replies, this is Jesus' response. Oh, okay, that's right. Um, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey guys... This isn't about your work. I'm not being unfair. This is about my grace. And Jesus is using this parable to teach what the kingdom of God is actually like. Right? Some may fight in the battles. Others may stay with the baggage. But God rewards them all because he is the king. And the king can do what the king wants to do. And really, we don't deserve anything because according to the gospel, the only one who crossed the the brook and went into battle for us was Jesus. And everybody else is back here with the baggage. But as the one did, so we share alike. That's justification. That's, That's the gospel, right? What had the people just said in 1 Samuel 30, before they started complaining. The writer makes a comment. He says, they all were saying, this is David's spoil. So they seemed to recognize they had no claim to it. 
And David understood that it really it didn't belong to him either. It belonged to the Lord. Now, when we met David back in chapter 13, do you remember how he was described? It's a famous thing, right? David is a man after God's own heart. And this is an important example of what that means because David is dispensing both justice and grace. He's doing, in this case, what I think God himself would have done. He's being a good king. And so that's 1 Samuel 30. It's a story about a good priest and a good king, but it's really, it's really about a better God. This story is about suffering on the path to victory. Amen? This story is about trusting in God more than we trust in men. This story is about getting much more than we deserve because we were all the ones standing with the baggage too tired to cross the river or the brook while Jesus, our high priest and our our great king, went across and won the battle by himself. He didn't need 400 men with him. And the king says to us, Jesus says to us, the tired and the afraid, even to the ones who would have stoned him in mutiny. He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, Jesus is saying to us, I am not the king who takes. I'm the king who gives. I am not the king who takes. I'm the king who gives. He is the king who suffered so that through him, We can draw near to God's throne of grace in confidence, not in fear, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, so that's the kind of big picture of this text. But one thing I want to do before we close, one last thought. I want to go back to the idea that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Because... I think this is probably, as you leave this morning, this is the most important takeaway for us. That that verse hints at something that the New Testament is going to call union with Christ. Which is perhaps the most important theological concept in the New Testament, if not the whole Bible. Okay, The Apostle Paul specifically hammers the church With this idea. He says things like, When I am weak, then I am strong. God's grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my weakness. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? Everybody's favorite verse. That's not just fancy encouragement. He's talking specifically about something that is mysterious and amazing. Because Paul understood what Jesus meant when he said in John 15, apart from me, 
you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is what it means to be saved. It is not my works that save me. It's also not my faith that saves me. It's the object of my faith that saves me. David strengthened himself in the Lord. But then, in the Lord, he goes to work. This is difficult, but it is crucial. And right now, like in the back of my head, I'm praying for the Holy Spirit to help us to understand. Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, over 160 times to describe the Christian experience. And at the most basic level, it means this. It means... I'm not the most important person in my life. You're not the most important person in your life. Jesus is. His work for me and His work in me, that's what defines me. He's the source of my strength. For today and my hope for tomorrow. And listen, brothers and sisters, sometimes we walk away from church. We hear a good word and we, we walk away telling ourselves, I just need to obey God more. I've got to do a better job. I've got to obey God. I've got to do a better job as a Christian. Don't we sometimes leave feeling that way? Sometimes we walk away thinking, I just need to believe the gospel more. I just need to remember what God did for me. But you know what? Neither of those things alone is the right message. Because the focus is on you. Not Christ. Right? I need to obey God more. I need to believe the gospel more. Okay, the message is that if you belong to Jesus, you're not walking out of here alone. As one writer says, it is the perfect Christ who saves us, not our imperfect obedience or our imperfect faith. So here's the message. Don't reduce the glory of your salvation in Christ to the smallness of your individual experience of Him. It is a wonderful and marvelous mystery that anybody in this room is saved. Anybody. And it is a mystery. And let it be that. And just walk away this morning in worship. Not, i got to do a better job. Or, I'm just not believing the gospel, right? Just be amazed that God has invited you into His kingdom and has done everything necessary to secure your spot there. And just worship. Just be thankful. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we need your help to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. To, to know what that means, to know why we need you each hour of every day. To um, Father, we just pray that you would lead our hearts to worship. Some of us may be in the middle of intense suffering right now due to pain or illness or loss, financial crisis, an uncertain future, whatever it is, Lord. You know each and every person in this room and what they're dealing with. None of it is in vain. You have promised suffering to your children in this life. But just as David crossed over and won back literally everything, everything the text says, everything the writer says, not one soul lost, not one sheep, not one goat, everything, David got it back. And that's the promise to the Christian. No matter what we're experiencing right now, every single thing, we will get back in Christ one day. It will all be undone. And we don't have to earn that. We don't have to figure it out. It's just grace. And so we receive it in thankfulness this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.